0: Chapter 4, Part 2 of Moonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Moonfleet by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter 4, Part 2 of 2. In returning to the vault, I had no very sure purpose in mind. Only a vague surmise that this finding of Blackbeard's coffin would somehow lead to the finding of his treasure. But as I looked at the beard and pondered, I began to see that if anything was to be done, it must be by searching in the coffin itself. And the clearer this became to me, the greater was my dislike to set about such a task. So I put off the evil hour by feigning to myself that it was necessary to make a careful scrutiny of the beard and thus wasted at least ten minutes. But at length, seeing that the candle was burning low, and could certainly last little more than half an hour, and considering that it must now be getting near dawn, I buckled to the distasteful work of rummaging the coffin. Nor had I any need to climb up on the top shelf again, but standing on the one beneath, found my head and arms well on a level with the search, and beside that, The task was not so difficult as I had thought, for in my fall I had broken off the head-end of the lid, and brought away the whole of the side that faced the vault. Now, any lad of my age, and perhaps some men too, might well have been frightened to set about such a matter as to search in a coffin, and if any had said, a few hours before, that I should ever have courage to do this by night in the moon vault, I would not have believed him yet here I was, and had advanced along the path of terror so gradually, and as it were foot by foot in the past night, that when I came to this final step I was not near so scared as when I first felt my way into the vault. It was not the first time either that I had looked on death, but had, indeed, always a leaning to such sights and matters, and had seen corpses washed up from the Darius and other wrecks, and, besides, That had helped Ratsey to case some poor bodies that had died in their beds. The coffin was, as I have said, of great length, and the side being removed I could see the whole outline of the skeleton that lay in it. I say the outline, for the form was wrapped in a woolen or flannel shroud, so that the bones themselves were not visible. The man that lay in it was little short of a giant, measuring, as I guessed, a full six and a half feet and the flannel having sunk in over the belly, the end of the breastbone, the hips, knees, and toes, were very easy to be made out. The head was swathed in linen bands that had been white, but were now stained and discoloured with damp. But of this I shall not speak more, and beneath the chin-cloth the beard had once escaped. The clutch which I had made to save myself in falling had torn away this chin-band, and let the lower jaw drop on the breast but little else was disturbed. And there was Colonel John Moon, resting as he had been laid out a century ago. I lifted that portion of the lid which had been left behind, and reached over to see if there was anything hid on the other side of the body, but had scarce let the light fall in the coffin when my heart gave a great bound, and all fear left me in a flush of success, for there I saw what I had come to seek. On the breast of this silent and swathed figure lay a locket, attached to the neck by a thin chain which passed inside the linen bandages. A wider portion of the flannel showed how far the beard had extended, but the locket and chain were quite black, though I judged that they were made of silver. The shape of this locket was not unlike a crown piece, only three times as thick, and as soon as I set my eyes upon it I never doubted but that inside would be found the diamond. It was then that a great pity came over me for this thin shadow of a man, thinking rather what a fine, tall gentleman Colonel Moon had once been, and a good soldier no doubt besides, than that he had wasted a noble estate and played traitor to the King. And then I reflected that it was all for the bit of flashing stone which lay, as I hoped, within the locket, that he had sold his honour, and wished that the jewel might bring me better fortune than had fallen to him or at any rate that it might not lead me into such miry paths. Yet such thoughts did not delay my purpose, and I possessed myself of the locket easily enough, finding a hasp in the chain, and so drawing it out from the linen folds. I had expected, as I moved the locket, to hear the jewel rattle in the inside, but there was no sound, and then I thought that the diamond might cleave to the side with damp, or perhaps be wrapped in wool. Scarcely was the locket well in my hand before I had it undone, finding a thumb-nick whereby, after a little persuasion, the back, though rusted, could be opened on a hinge. My breath came very fast, and I shook so that I had a difficulty to keep my thumb-nail in the nick. Yet hardly was it opened before exalted expectation gave place to deepest disappointment." For there lay all the secret of the locket disclosed, and there was no diamond, no, nor any other jewel, and nothing at all except a little piece of folded paper. Then I felt like a man, who had played away all his property and stakes, his last crown, heavy-hearted, yet hoping against hope that luck may turn, and that with this piece be may win back all his money. So it was for me, for I hoped that this paper might have written on it directions for the finding of the jewel." and that I might yet rise from the table a winner. But it was a frail hope, and quickly dashed. For when I had smoothed the creases and spread out the piece of paper in the candlelight, there was nothing to be seen except a few verses from the Psalms of David. The paper was yellow, and showed a lattice of folds where it had been pressed into the locket. But the handwriting, though small, was clear and neat, and there was no mistaking a word of what was there set down was so short, I could read it at once. The days of our age are threescore years and ten, and though men may be so strong that they come to fourscore years, yet it is their strength then but labor and sorrow, so soon passeth it away, and we are gone. Psalm ninety twenty one. And as for me, my feet are almost gone, my treadings are well nigh slipped. 73, 6. But let not the water-flood drown me, neither let the deep swallow me up. 69.11 So going through the vale of misery I shall use it for a well, till the pools are filled with water. 84.14 For thou hast made the north and the south, Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. Eighty nine six. So here was an end to great hopes and I was, after all, to leave the vault no richer than I had entered it. For look at it as I might, I could not see that these verses could ever lead to any diamond, and though I might otherwise have thought of ciphers or secret writing, yet, remembering what Mr. Glynney had said, that Blackbeard, after his wicked life, desired to make a good end, and sent for a parson to confess him, I guessed that such pious words had been hung around his neck as a charm, to keep the spirits of evil away from his tomb. I was disappointed enough. But before I left, picked up the beard from the floor, though it sent a shiver through me to touch it, and put it back in its place on the dead man's breast. I restored also such pieces of the coffin as I could get at, but could not make much of it, so left things as they were, trusting that those who came there next would think that the wood had fallen to pieces by natural decay, but the locket I kept, and hung about my neck under my shirt, both as being a curious thing in itself, and because I thought that if the good words inside it were strong enough to keep off bad spirits from Blackbeard, they would also be strong enough to keep Blackbeard from me. When this was done the candle had burnt so low that I could no longer hold it in my fingers, and was forced to stick it on a piece of broken wood, and so carry it before me. But, after all, I was not to escape from Blackbeard's clutches so easily, for when I came to the end of the passage, and was prepared to climb up into the churchyard, I found that the hole was stopped, and that there was no exit. I understood now how it was that I heard talking so long after the company had left the vault, for it was clear that Ratty had been as good as his word, and that the falling in of the ground had been repaired before the contraband men went home that night. At first I made light of the matter, thinking I should be able to dislodge this new work, and so find a way out. But when I looked more narrowly into the business I did not feel so sure, for they had made a sound job of it, putting one very heavy burial slab at the side to pile earth against it till the hole was full, and then covering it with another. These were both of slate, and I knew whence they came for there were a dozen or more of such disused and weather-worn covers laid up against the north side of the church, and every one of them was a good burden for four men. Yet I hoped by grouting at the earth below it to be able to dislodge the stone at the side, and while I was considering how best to begin, the candle flickered, the wick gave a sudden lurch to one side, and I was left in darkness. Thus my plight was evil indeed for I had nothing now to burn to give me light, and knew that t'was no use setting to grout till I could see to go about it. Moreover, the darkness was of that black kind that is never found beneath the open sky, no, not even on the darkest night, but lurks in close and covered places, and strains the eyes in trying to see into it. Yet I did not give way, but settled to wait for dawn, which must, I knew, be now at hand, for then I thought enough light would come through the chinks of the tomb above to show me how to set to work. Nor was I even much scared, as one who having been in peril of life from the contraband men for a spy, and in peril from evil ghosts for rifling Blackbeard's tomb, deemed it a light thing to be left in the dark to wait an hour till morning. So I sat down on the floor of the passage, which, if damp, was at least soft, and, being tired with what I had gone through, and not used to miss a night's rest, fell straightway asleep. How long I slept I cannot tell, for I had nothing to guide me to the time but woke at length, and found myself still in darkness. I stood up and stretched my limbs, but did not feel as one refreshed by wholesome sleep, but sick and tired with pains in back, arms, and legs, as if beaten or bruised. I have said I was still in darkness, yet it was not the blackness of the last night, and looking up into the inside of the tomb above, I could see the faintest line of light at one corner, which showed the sun was up, for this line of light was the sunlight, filtering slowly through a crevice at the joining of the stones. But the sides of the tomb had been fitted much closer than I had reckoned for, and it was plain there would never be light in the place enough to guide me to my work." All this I considered as I rested on the ground, for I had sat down again feeling too tired to stand. But as I kept my eye on the narrow streak of light, I was much startled, for I looked at the southwest west corner of the tomb, and yet was looking towards the sun. This I gathered from the tone of the light, and although there was no direct outlet to the air, and only a glimmer came in, as I have said, yet I knew certainly that the sun was low in the west and falling full upon this stone. Here was a surprise, and a sad one for me, for I perceived that I had slept away a day, and that the sun was setting for another night. And yet it mattered little, for night or daytime there was no light to help me in this horrible place. And though my eyes had grown accustomed to the gloom, I could make out nothing to show me where to work. So I took out my tinder-box, meaning to fan the match into a flame and to get at least one moment's look at the place, and then to set digging with my hands. But as I lay asleep the top had been pressed off of the box, and the tinder got loose in my pockets. And though I picked the tinder out easily enough and got it in the box again, yet the salt damps of the place had sodden it in the night, and spark by spark fell idle from the flint. And then it was that I first perceived the danger in which I stood, for there was no hope of kindling a light, and I doubted now whether even in the light I could ever have done much to dislodge the great slab of slate. I began also to feel very hungry, as not having eaten for twenty-four hours. And worse than that, there was a parching thirst and dryness in my throat, and nothing with which to quench it. Yet there was no time to be lost if I was ever to get out alive and so I groped with my hands against the side of the grave until I made out the bottom edge of the slab, and then fell to grubbing beneath it with my fingers. But the earth, which the day before had looked light and loamy to the eye, was stiff and hard enough when one came to tackle it with naked hands, and in an hour's time I had done little more than further weary myself and bruise my fingers. Then I was forced to rest, and, sitting down on the ground, saw that the glimmering streak of light had faded, and that the awful blackness of the previous night was creeping up again. And now I had no heart to face it, being cowed with hunger, thirst, and weariness, and so flung myself upon my face that I might not see how dark it was, and groaned for very lowness of spirit. Thus I lay for a long time, but afterwards stood up and cried aloud and shrieked, if any one should haply hear me, calling to Mr. Glenny and Ratsian and even Elzevir by name, to save me from this awful place. But there came no answer, except the echo of my own voice sounding hollow and far off down in the vault. So in despair I turned back to the earth wall below the slab, and scrabbled at it with my fingers till my nails were broken and the blood ran out, having all the while a sure knowledge like a cord twisted round my head, that no effort of mine could ever dislodge the great stone. And thus hours passed, and I shall not say more here, for the remembrance of that time is still terrible. And besides, no words could ever set forth the anguish I then suffered. Yet did slumber come sometimes to my help, for even while I was working at the earth, sheer weariness would overtake me, and I sank onto the ground and fell asleep and still the hours passed. And at last I knew by the glimmer of light in the tomb above that the sun had risen again, and a maddening thirst had hold of me. And then I thought of all the barrels piled up in the vault, and of the liquor that they held, and stuck not because twas spirit, for I would scarce have paused to sate that thirst even with molten lead. So I felt my way down the passages back to the vault and wrecked not of the darkness nor of Blackbeard and his crew, if only I could lay my lips to liquor. Thus I groped about the barrels, till near the top of the stack, my hand struck on a spile of a keg, and drawing it, got my mouth to the hold. What the liquor was I do not know, but it was not so strong but that I could swallow it in great gulps and found it less burning than my burning throat." But when I turned to get back to the passage, I could not find the outlet, and fumbled round and round until my brain was dizzy, and I fell senseless to the ground. End of chapter four.